Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Brian Lubers, and Dr. Philip Lancaster. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Morning, Brad. Morning. Happy to have you guys with us today and happy to have you with us as well. And we always appreciate you listening and letting us know your thoughts. And you can email us at bci at ksu.edu. We also have a weekly newsletter that we send out. If you're interested in that, you can sign up there. Because we're going to have several good topics today based on listener questions. One is about bottle calves and one is about grass feeding uh, steer at home to finish. So we'll talk about some of the details there. We're also going to stay on the potential bottle calf topic for a minute and talk about if you want to graft an orphan or graft a new calf to a cow that may have lost hers during this calving season. We'll talk about pros and cons from that from a health standpoint and how you might be able to do that. And we'll also visit about the breeding season in monitoring the bulls because that's an important part of the breeding process, obviously. And we talked about if prior to the breeding season, monitoring bulls, we'll talk a little bit about what should you be watching for now. Before we get into those topics, I, I, it is that time of year. Some days are rainy, some days are wet. Uh, the grass is dewy in the morning, so a lot of times you put on your rubber boot. And, and I say there's not much more annoying than having something get in that boot with mm. your foot. And then you feel that little bitty pebble. Is it just me? I'm just not very tough. But I come to a halt, even if it's a piece of cracked corn, and you're like, I got to get that out of my shoe. So I, do you, are you guys the same way with that? Or is that, does that stuff bug yeah, you or not? I thought you were going to talk about when you put your foot in and there's a mouse in there. That's, <laughs> no. That's really an exciting morning. No, you know? I can't. That's, so that bugs me. But then my son comes home from first grade the other day and he, he goes, I think I got a rock in my shoe. He dumps out his shoes. I got the scoop shovel and filled a pothole in the driveway. So we're, we're bringing, we are bringing home the playground at school, like uh, just like they did in the movie Shawshank Redemption, like one yeah. little scoop at a time. So I'm redoing our driveway. It's perfect. I don't know how that kid walks. So. No. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of anything in my boot except my feet. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Brian, last week we talked about uh, generics and generic products, and I wanted to follow up on that a little bit because there's some terms, and you and I had a hallway conversation this week. There are some terms that sometimes get intermingled, and I want you to distinguish those for me. So generics versus a compounded product sure and and a recap for last week you know it, generics go through a rigorous approval process and you know my opinion is they are a safe and valid option for producers to use right now the one thing that producers can use to distinguish if a product is a true generic on the label there will be an ANADA number that stands for abbreviated new animal drug application number. But we get into situations where veterinarians or producers have asked us about other products, and these could be products that are compounded. So, uh, and we've also we've also ran into situations where we've seen just just flat counterfeit products. And so, compounded products, counterfeit products. They don't 
undergo the safety, the purity, the efficacy testing that we have with the Pioneer or the brand name products or the generics. And so uh, we, you know, compounding can legally be used in some situations in veterinary medicine, but they should be the rare exception. Uh, counterfeits are, are just strictly illegal and would encourage people to avoid those at all costs. Yeah. I mean, I've, in my career, I've run across some counterfeit a couple of times. And, and basically, you're talking about a criminal element that's involved with, uh, yeah, doing something illegal. Don't be involved. Yeah. And, you know, those counterfeit products, not only do we not know if they're safe, we don't know what's in the bottle, um, all of those issues. But purchasing those things really discourages the manufacturers from developing other products. Um, and so if we want to get new tools in the future, um, that is supported by the products we buy today. And that's what encourages those people to, to bring us new things. So it actually hurts us both short and long term. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good clarification. And is your, your product purchase decisions are obviously based on your product needs or what you need there need to incorporate where you're going to get them from so there's part of that part of that process well, yeah it's kind of like buy from reputable sources yep absolutely so so we did have a and i'm going to shift gears and we had a, a great listener question and, and they asked if we'd ever done any bottle calf topics on our podcast and we haven't that i remember and this is a great topic and one that i i really enjoy because our boys have raised bottle calves for several years, and it's one of the things they do. Phillips kids are raising a bottle calf this year. I know Brian and Bob, you guys have had experience with this, and what a lot of fun, especially once you get through the first day. Yeah, okay, the first, the first days, day yeah. is a little tough, right? You got to get them to get it on the bottle, and then you got to feed them every day. So toward the end, that gets kind of tiresome, but there's a couple weeks in there where it's beautiful. Of course, that's usually when it's freezing cold, but uh, bottle calves are fun to do, but there are some things that we need to think about. And so uh, they ask about weaning procedures, when to introduce feed and what type of feed, but I, I want to start maybe from the beginning. So Philip, there, there's, we want to get a calf that has and let's say they've had colostrum or we're at least outside of the window where we're going to give them colostrum. So we're going to start them on a good, high-quality milk supplement. And there are directions that will tell you how much you should feed that calf. But you also want to monitor kind of not just their intake, but how the calf is doing. What nutritional recommendations do you have for these calves starting out, Philip? Oh, so a couple of things. There's on the, on the milk replacer, there's different... Um, products out there made from different sources and so that's, <clears throat> there's some of them that are made from using milk proteins and or whey protein and there's some of them that are made using soy proteins and so especially the first two three weeks we you want to make sure that you're using a product made from milk protein um, it's more digestible in the gut of that calf and and a better source of of amino acids for that that growing calf, especially in the first few weeks of, of life. Um, and then um, just watching the amount, you know, that they have a recommendation on the, on the bag. Um, but, uh, you know, lots of times that recommendation is 
is, um, in my opinion, a little bit low from what a, if you think about what a beef calf would consume. Um, and so um, you may want to actually give more than what the bag recommends, uh, although then you're, you're balancing cost and, and things there too because, you know, those milk replacers are definitely not cheap. So they're expensive, but I, I think watching and remember that calf's going to grow, right? As you're, as you're feeding them through that period of time, they're growing, and on a percentage basis, they're growing their body weight very rapidly because mm -hmm. they're – so you want to monitor their intake, and I think your comments on milk replacer are really good. What about water for these calves? And, and Brian, I know you've had a lot of experience on the, on the dairy side – uh, and have dealt with some of these calf growing operations. But as we think about bottle calves and beef calves, what about providing them water? Yeah, actually, can I go back to milk replacer before I get to water? You bet. Because, because if this is somebody that isn't used to raising bottle calves, uh, just be aware that milk replacer is considered a fee. And so if you buy medicated milk replacer, you will have to have a veterinary fee directive in order to obtain that. Um, obviously, operations that, that do all, all the time are familiar with that. But, you know, if this is somebody who's uh, doing it as kind of a one-off here or there thing, um, there's, a, there's one extra logistical step if you feel like medicated milk replacer is normal. Um, but as far as the water goes, uh, basically, we want calves to have access to fresh, clean water uh, and as much as they'll consume. So we don't, we don't want the empty bucket. Right. So um, and make sure that we're cleaning out those buckets. If and again, it, all of this really depends on what the situation is. Is this a one off bottle calf uh, that we're doing, you know, as a hobby, a 4-H project? Or is this something where we're trying to replace a calf that died or kind of that we're, we're getting an orphan calf into a herd? Or is this something we're doing as a as a true we're going to make a production system out of bottle calves? Um, but make sure, again, with the water, we want those buckets to be clean. So empty them out, scrub brush, and a you know quick soap and water is always a good idea. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the thing that gets forgotten along the way sometimes is, yep, I'm feeding them water. I'm feeding them water in their milk replacer. So how much more do they need? Well, don't don't make that decision for them. Make sure they have access to clean, fresh water, and let the calf kind of go through that process. And one other point is don't forget overall sanitation. You talked about the sanitize, you know, making sure you have sanitary feeding equipment, the, the bottle and the buckets and things like that, but also just make sure that the environment is, is really clean. So that may involve, you know, frequent cleaning as well as appropriate bedding and those types of things. This is a, a young animal that's at a susceptible time in their life to diseases. So we want to make sure that their diet is really good, but we also want to make sure that they're really in a clean environment. All right, Philip. When when to introduce grain and hay, or feed and hay, and what kind of feed do you want to start them on? So probably um, introduce it pretty early on. Really, um, those calves, depending on how much milk replacer you're feeding and and things like that, they'll start to nibble on some of that grain um, within uh, the first or second week or so, and then they'll start to actually consume a little bit after you know, somewhere around there, three weeks old or, or so. And, and then what we, but what we want to do is remember, so to get that calf 
to develop the rumen is is what the goal of, of introducing these things early is. It's not providing really a whole lot of nutrition, but we're trying to get that microbial population in the rumen to develop and so that they're ready to transition to a solid food diet, so to speak, um, at weaning time. And so um, the type of grain makes a, a difference. We want to a textured type of grain will promote greater rumen development than pelleted um, grains or pelleted feed. And we want to introduce mostly a grain-based feed with both limited amounts of, of hay to, to some degree. And <clears throat> so that that, because that rumen's not able to digest hay very well, um, especially in a young calf. And so they need something more readily digestible like starch or highly digestible fibers in some of these uh, grain byproducts to get that microbial population growing and, and get that rumen development happening. Absolutely. And when do you, when do you think about weaning those calves? I, Brian, maybe have more experience with this than I do, but typically somewhere around 45 to 60 days is usually a general target um and then depending on how much you're going how much milk you've fed them kind of how you stair step them down um to promote increased feed consumption before you actually take the bottle away yeah on the dairy side you know early weaning would be uh six weeks or so uh but you see programs it's up to 16 weeks i think recommendations would be when they're starting to consume, you know, one to two percent of their body weight and supplement, you start to pull that milk replacer away from them. So um, it just the systems vary depending on what what how the logistics work. Some of them it's a time deal. Some of them are a little bit better able to monitor intakes, and so um, those guidelines will vary a little bit on what you're doing. And, and obviously, in a beef system, that might be with multiple animals, it's a little harder to monitor individual intakes. So uh, maybe maybe a timed approach is a little bit better. Yeah, and I think I think good point there that um, if you can do it based on the individuals, that probably makes sense. And if that's sixty days, uh, it may be more or less for some others. But you want them to be eating feed, right? You don't want to wean a calf that's not ready to go to the next step because they've got to get nutrition somehow. And the, and the calves will kind of go through that process. So we'll talk, we've talked on the bottle calf side. Now I'm going to flip the coin here and talk about the other thing that happens at this time of year, which is we sometimes have cows that will lose a calf. And you may say, I'm going to go try to find a new baby calf that potentially lost his mom. And I'll put those two together and I'll bring that calf onto my operation. So I'm going to ask the first question. I have a cow. Her calf uh, died during dystocia. I'm going to go find a new baby, bring him, put him on my farm. Concerns, thoughts? Yeah, a couple of things that I think of from a health standpoint. I understand the desire to do that because you've got a cow that, that has the ability to raise a calf. And, and if I can bring a calf from the same farm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. When you start talking about bringing a calf in from another farm, I start to become concerned from a health standpoint. And one of the things that we did a few years ago, we looked at kind of some of the risk factors for summer pneumonia. So you're talking about kind of these outbreaks of pneumonia in, in um, suckling calves in July, August, that time frame. And one of the pretty tightly associated risk factors was you brought in some orphans, an orphan or two, several months ago. And, and so it, 
just the idea that you know you you're you're bringing in some outside germs is a concern for me. So I I certainly if you do that, I think I would separate that mother and calf away from the other calves. So sure. you know just keep them separate, which maybe is a, takes away some of the benefit because now I've got an extra pair to take care of in a separate location. But I'm a little bit hesitant to bring that calf in contact with other calves. And and as you talk about calf health and potential pneumonia what how does this play into scours any concern there with scours with the rest of the herd with that calf i i should have said the same thing with scours is is really you're bringing in a calf that's been exposed to other germs or not exposed to the germs in your herd and so either way this calf's a little more at risk as well as bringing some additional risk to the herd. So I like to keep my herds as closed as possible, meaning you're not really bringing in new animals, particularly probably young animals are the, the highest risk animals to bring into a herd. So I, I have some concerns about um, grafting an outside calf onto a cow in the herd. Well, and not to belabor that point of disease, but he may not look sick. A lot of our pathogens that cause pneumonia or scours they live in the animal and they're going to be in the calf and that calf may not look sick, but he could bring something in from the, from the outside. Brian, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah. As, as kind of the germ guy, they scare me. So I'm, I'm, I agree with Bob. I mean, we talked about respiratory and scours, but then you think about things like Yoni's disease and BVD, which have pretty severe herd implications. And I just, it has to be a pretty unique situation to even be worth the risk. And I know maybe Philip's got some comments on the economics of doing that, but you could tie that in with what your what the risk is to your herd for disease. And I, I'm just not convinced it's a good a good practice in general. Yeah, and I mean after you know purchasing the bottle calf this year for four H project and stuff, you're looking at you know three, four hundred dollars to buy some of those some of those bottle calves. You know, that that's a whole nother winter feed bill for that cow. So, I mean, think about the economics of, of doing that. Is, is it really even going to pay off? You think you may be better off just to sell the cow as an open cow. Yeah. 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 So, I think, I think, think through the economics and the biosecurity implications. But we know that folks do it. If you are going to do it, what are the, are, are there any tips or tricks that you guys have? Because grafting a calf onto a new cow is really challenging. And I don't know of a lot of great ways to, there's, it, this is something that I have heard a lot of people try a lot of different things. Yeah. And usually when that's the case, nothing works well. Because right. if something worked well, everybody just do that. They wouldn't need 1500 different ways to do it. Yeah, you guys have any tips or tricks? I'm, I'm kind of laughing because my experience has not been pleasant. I mean, yeah. you know, some of the things you can, you can try milking the cow out and feeding that milk to her, that to the orphan calf to try to get, you know, her to bond with it and stuff. But I don't like milking beef cows. I think that's hard to do. That, that doesn't seem pleasant to me at all. Uh, a lot of times what you end up really doing is just putting that cow and calf in a, a confined area and, and see if they'll bond and they may or may not. Sometimes we'll even put the cow in a squeeze chute and kind of, kind of help that calf suckle and, and keep her from kicking him while he's doing that and just trying to get that bonding to start. And it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, but it's, it takes a lot of work and um, yeah, it, it, it can be done obviously because people have 
successfully grafted calves onto cows, but it usually involves some um, inconvenience and frustration on my part if I'm involved. So a lot of a lot of thought there relative to before you do it, don't just do it out of habit. Think about the biosecurity implications. Think about the economics. Think about how I'm going to do it. And and we know that that happens at this time of year. And the other thing that we'll deal with at this time, breeding season is upon us or having started on many operations. We spent several podcasts talking about what to do and prep for breeding season. Now we're here and we use the analogy of the bull being the athlete, and he went through preseason training. Well, now we're in the first few games of the year. What do we do to monitor that bull during the breeding season? Well, I'm going to say, first of all, it's really important that we do monitor him. This is, this is game time. You know, now, now the season has started. Um, he's going to be breeding a lot of, all the, all the cows are open. So he's got a lot of cows to, to monitor and to breed in a short period of time. And so the things that I'm worried about are him hurting his feet or legs, you know, and that may be, you know, an, an injury, uh, fighting with another bull, just stepping in a hole. All those types of things can be challenges that, that bulls can run into because they're, they're, they're really spending a lot of time walking, spending a lot of time working. So I'm going to look closely at feet and legs and, uh, and looking for signs of, of lameness, limping, those types of things. And, what I mean by that is a lot of times bulls spend a lot of time just laying down, but always when you go out and check the bull, take the time to get him up and make sure that those feet and legs are okay. The other thing that can get damaged or injured is, is the penis. Um, and when that happens, a lot of times there's um, some swelling that occurs. So somewhere between the, the sheath and the, and the scrotum that the testicles, you'll see a, a large area of, of swelling. And so if you look along his midline, yeah. it, so you're looking along standing him. up, his silhouette would be abnormal. That's right. It's like, wow, there's a swelling there that didn't belong there. So, yeah. So I look at feet and legs and that underline. There's other things that can happen to a bull, but those would be the things that are probably most common and most severe. And so I'd really take, take time to look at feet and legs and the underline. And then just look at his overall health and body condition, activity, you know, kind of indications of, that he's in good health. So I like your approach there of be sure he gets up, moves around, and, and it doesn't sound very time-consuming, what you're describing. I don't have to get him back up to the chute. I just have to put myself in the moment because it's easy to go check cows at this time of year. They're on green grass, check. They're here, check. The bull's here. I'm in my truck and going, or I may not have got out of my truck. And what you're suggesting is, take that extra 30 seconds, get out of my truck, make sure that the bull's doing well. I'd say always, but particularly these first three to four weeks of the breeding season are the most important time of the year. I mean, this is all the cows need, you know, are open at the start of that period and need to get bred. Um, this is, this is the most important time of the year as far as the success of the overall breeding season, the age of the calves that I'm going to be weaning. So that's income. Uh, this is in a very important time of the year. So these three to four weeks really deserve some extra attention. And I know, you know, if you've got crops, you're also worried about planting. Uh, you've got a lot of things going on right now, but, but from the cattle operations side, um, this is a really important month. So give it the attention it deserves. Absolutely. And I think, I think you're exactly right to, 
just just do a check on the bull and make it part of your habit when you're out there checking them, especially those first three weeks. So we also had a, another listener question that I want to be sure that we get to. And, and Philip, I'm going to turn to you. This question was on grass feeding. And, and their question was, are grass feeding a steer for the first time? This is for their family um, understanding that this is going to take longer than grain finishing but wanted to get some input on maybe some tips and tricks from the nutrition side or things to think about when you're grass finishing one. So well, I think for the, one of the first things to remember, your grass finishing, you're not necessarily going to have grass all year round, and you're not necessarily going to have the quality of grass that you need to get that calf to gain weight um, in, in order to get fat all year round. And so it's going to require some supplementation at different times of year or, and especially as that calf starts to get toward that, the heavier weights and, and finishing grass, even if he's eating as much grass as he can, it just does not provide enough energy to deposit fat. And so you're going to need to, to provide some supplemental feedstuffs to get him finished in a way that you probably are wanting as far as consuming that that animal so anything to think about from the health standpoint on this grass finishing bob or brian you know the only thing about that i consider is anytime you're talking about cattle on grass uh parasites become more important uh than when you finish cattle in a feedlot uh and so a lot of times we don't think about deworming feedlot cattle um you know, once they're on feed and going, but we do talk about that for cattle that are being finished on grass. So pay attention to your parasite control because it's going to be important all the time that they're out on, on grass during the uh, parasite times of the year. Yeah. And I would add, and I don't know that it's necessarily just a health perspective, Brad, but you know, the, the listener comment was on feeding a steer for the first time. And so I, I kind of like a little more information about why, they're moving into this. And my concern is with grass fed, you're, we're talking about a much extended time frame, And so it increases the risk for anything to happen, right? It increases the chance of an injury and we, we lose that animal. And so I'd, I'd like a little more information about the motives behind it. I think, you know, they could probably range anywhere from, uh, this is, we feel like this is a cheaper alternative to raise some of our own food. And then there's a whole movement on raising our own food. And so just, you know, if, if the end goal is to have meat in the freezer, understand that now the window for opportunity for things to go wrong is increased. And so I, I just counsel them a little bit on relying that on as that's going to be our sole source of food product for the next whatever. Well, and I think, your point there is you think about over time and I'll go back to my, my bottle calves, um, a lot of stuff to do at the start. And then there's a long period of time that you keep doing all that stuff. So as you go through winters and summers and all of those things, you have to be sure that you've got the equipment, the housing, the ability to handle that process. And then what you're saying, Brian, what's, what's the end goal, right? Am I, am I looking to make hamburger? Am I looking to have steaks and hamburgers? Am I looking at what am I having? And, and kind of match that with the profile of the animal you're raising. I think a great experience to, to finish something on your own. 
uh, often when we've looked at the economics on that, it's not an eco- for, for us. And every time I've looked at it, it's not an economical alternative in <laughs> in in some cases, right? It may not be the cheapest way to do it if you're raising one. Now there are considerations in that process that that may make a difference, and you want to go through it. Awesome. I think that's a, a great opportunity. And Philip, you talked about the nutrition. The other thing I'd add is some way of monitoring. Because we know if we meet an animal's absolute nutritional maintenance need, and as that animal reaches maturity, if you feed them their maintenance requirement every day, they're going to stay about the same size because you're by definition, you're maintaining them. If you get a little bit over that, they're going to grow but they're going to meet maintenance first. So have some way to monitor, am I achieving my growth goal, whatever that growth goal is. If I don't meet maintenance requirement, I actually might be losing a little bit of weight, which could make this process take a little bit longer. So I think understanding your final goals, where you're going to go with it, and then monitor a little bit along each step of the process. Would you agree, Philip? Is that the approach you would take? Yeah. In one way, you that to think about that that as, as it calf is getting larger and, and you're trying to get him finished you know body condition scores and, and an easily visible way to evaluate if he's getting fatter and it, you know you're looking at volume he's getting bigger but you know we want to move that animal from probably a five body condition score up to to what would be a, an eight eight and a half body condition score that they've they've got optimum or acceptable fat cover um, to produce good quality uh, meat. Excellent. Well, they're great. And Brett, I also think too, you know, with the end goal in mind, think about, we talked about the economics, economics, the logistics, the nutrition, but also make sure that end goal lines up with their taste preferences because this raising an animal in this situation, uh, you'll have much different uh, taste profile than you would be from a conventionally raised beef product. And, and maybe exactly what you're looking for or not, but you, you want to know that probably before you go through the process. So I think great points. Really good discussion today, guys, and enjoyed having you with us to share some of this feedback. We, we really enjoy those listener questions, and you can always send us one. If you've got a question or a topic you think we should talk about, send us one at bci at ksu.edu.